Hello, welcome to the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition's podcast, AJCN in Press. I am joined today by Dr. Kevin Whelan over in the UK. Dr. Whelan, you want to introduce yourself real quick? Hi, my name is Kevin Whelan from uh, King's College in London. Oh, did I pronounce your last name wrong? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> great. Super good friends. Yeah, that, it, um, I followed you on Twitter <laughs> for years, but here we are. <laughs> Um, well, Dr. Kevin Whelan, did I say that right? Okay. Yeah, that's right. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your training? And, uh, well, I guess you're well beyond training, but. <laughs> I am well beyond training, but, um, I started off my life as a biochemist, um, and, uh, saw the light and decided to train in nutrition and dietetics. And so I then did my master's degree. In, um, and qualified as a dietitian. And then I worked clinically in a hospital in London for a few years and became absolutely fascinated by um, gastroenterology and the effect of nutrients on the gut and on, on those processes on gut health and gut disease. And so I then did my PhD in nutritional sciences at King's College London. And my PhD investigated uh, prebiotic carbohydrates in enteral nutrition, and I did uh, lots of molecular microbiology about 20 years ago, uh, investigating supplementation of enteral formulas with um, uh, prebiotic carbohydrates and different fibers to investigate the effect on the microbiome and uh, short-chain fatty acids and clinical outcome. That then led into me being appointed to faculty at King's College London, and I've kind of been there for the next 20 years um, and I now head of Department of Nutritional Sciences at King's and my research really investigates the interaction between diet and the gut microbiota and the impact of that on gut disease and, and also on gut health increasingly. So I work in inflammatory bowel disease which is the manuscript we're talking about today but also I work in irritable bowel syndrome, I work in constipation, I still work in intensive care nutrition, um, and also just in general aspects of gut physiology. Awesome. Well, we are uh, super fortunate to have such an esteemed guest joining us. Uh, and today we're going to be specifically talking about your new manuscript that was just accepted in AJCN, uh, Food-Related Quality of Life is Impaired in Inflammatory Bowel Disease and Associated with in Reduced Intake of Key Nutrients. Uh, so this is, you know, as you said, you do a lot of inflammatory bowel disease research, and this is really, I, I wanted to talk about this one because I think we don't look at quality of life enough as an outcome in nutrition research. Uh, often we have all these biochemical markers and whatnot and try and project what's going to happen 20 years in the future, but don't always kind of define and, and try and intervene on the things that matter to patients now. Um, and given that we are the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, I thought this was really a, a perfect clinical kind of article to, to highlight. Uh, before we get too much into the paper, though, I've just kind of was, wanted to get your perspective on inflammatory bowel disease and sort of patient management and kind of lead into why we why you undertook this uh, this investigation. Great. So um, I know many of the 
readers and the listeners will be familiar with inflammatory bowel disease, but some might just need a bit of a recap. So just to remind you, it's what we're talking about here are Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. They're both types of inflammatory bowel disease. Um, they differ in their, um, their presentations. Crohn's disease is can occur anywhere from the mouth to the anus, um, unlike um, ulcerative colitis, which is just in the colon. Um, and also the type of inflammation that occurs in these diseases are slightly different. In Crohn's disease, it's uh, often penetrating and ulcerating, whereas in um, uh, ulcerative colitis, it's it's continuous. Um, but what's really, really uh, uh, similar about both diseases is that they, they result in a, a relapsing, remitting disease. So people go through periods of being very well and living an absolutely normal life, and then through periods of inflammation where they are having diarrhea eight, nine, ten times a day. Uh, they become, can become very anemic and extremely unwell, and often surgery and medicine are the, um, uh, are the mainstays of, of treatment. However, for Crohn's disease in particular, there have been some dietary treatments that have been trialled. In, in particular, the one with most evidence is exclusive enteral nutrition, which is um, where the, the patient stops eating uh, all foods and stops drinking all drinks and just lives from a diet of uh, enteral nutrition. They drink or is fed through a feeding tube. And they uh, they continue this for four to six weeks and then uh, reintroduce their normal diet. And that's the most uh, that's the most researched um, and evidence based treatment of Crohn's disease. There are new emerging therapies, though, which is really exciting for gastroenterologists and dietitians. Um, and we're really excited about the potential of specific diets, um, such as the restriction of emulsifiers, which is something we're also investigating, but also the potential of other diets, which so far haven't yet been very well investigated. Things like the anti-inflammatory diet, the um, specific carbohydrate diet and things like this. But the latter of those um, are as yet not really well investigated. Great. Thank you for that uh, introduction to IBD. So what led you to kind of undertake looking at quality of life metrics? Uh, and, and, you know, we just talked about a lot of the sort of uh, nutrition, medical nutrition therapy, but can you speak a little bit about why quality of life, uh, investigating quality of life matters so much? Well, it's, it's really a great question. It takes me back to where, where my interest really started in all of this was that um, when I was in clinical practice 20 years ago, I used to see people with Crohn's disease and with ulcerative colitis. Uh, and I used to do what I thought was a really, really good job of doing a nutritional assessment of their, um, you know, their, their, their anthropometry, their biochemical status, their, uh, their clinical condition, their nutrient intake. Uh, and I used to think I'd optimize their nutritional status. Um, but I was always really acutely aware of all the sorts of challenges that people faced in their life in terms of eating and drinking. And whereas I was obsessed with their hemoglobin or their ferritin concentration, they wanted to tell me what foods they could and couldn't um, eat. And so this really sparked an interest in it. Like, like most good research questions, they start with real experience often. And so I saw this happening 20 years ago. And then throughout my career, I've really watched the nutrition literature, how we've got a, so much of a better understanding of the, the microbiology of IBD, the nutrient metabolism in IBD, um, some of the nutritional therapies in ID, 
in, in IPD, but we've never really got to terms with the thing that I think is really, really important to patients. And that's what it's like to eat and drink uh, if you have inflammatory bowel disease. And the answer to that question, uh, we've been we've spent the last 15 years looking at, and the answer is it's really difficult for people. So, for example, um, uh, we started off uh, by doing some very, very quick sort of survey work uh, back in 2011, where we asked patients about their experiences of nutrition in IBD. And we were expecting answers relating to undernutrition and weight loss and things like that. But actually what came back is people talking about um, their inability to socialize, their inability to go to a restaurant, their refusal to go to celebrations and things like that. And this made me really think I had to investigate this further. So um, I um, applied for a grant from a patient charity called Crohn's and Colitis UK. Um, and they uh, funded us to do some qualitative research where we interviewed 29 people with IBD to try to identify what some of these issues were. Um, and when I sat and listened to those interviews, I was honestly quite moved at what people say. Um, they talk about, you know, not being able to um, eat food at a friend's um, birthday party. They talk about, um, you know, refusing to take part in religious cer ceremonies that, um, uh, that they would otherwise because it involves eating and drinking, not wanting to go on a date because you, you might want to go to a bar or go out for dinner with somebody. Um, and and it, some really aspects of everyday eating and drinking behaviour that I know that I personally enjoy, like I like going shopping to a supermarket, I like going to a market, trying out different foods, trying out different new foods, cooking, creating things in the kitchen and enjoying sitting down with family and friends and sharing that together. And it was really, really upsetting to hear just how much that often wasn't a part of what it meant to live with IBD and that people don't enjoy those experiences and people don't enjoy creating food and sharing them with family members. Um, and so that was really the start of a quest to start measuring this. Awesome. Well, I'm so glad uh, that this research is being done because I've, I've heard that a bunch from patients that are trying occlusive enteral therapy and different exclusion diets. And they, uh, they, they just the interruption to their quality of life, no matter how short term efficacious it is, is, is uh, a big factor that they're weighing in. It's not always considered in some of these large randomized control trials. So in this paper, uh, you kind of just gave a, a great history of kind of what led to it. But how did you guys actually go about this investigation? So before we we sort of defined what food related quality of life was from our qualitative interviews. And so the next step really had to be first to then develop and validate a questionnaire that we could therefore measure this phenomena. So we we um, we developed and validated the questionnaire. And then we used that questionnaire, which is called the FRQUAL29, so Food Related Quality of Life 29, because it has 29 questions in it. Um, and so once we'd now had a tool for the first time to be able to measure this, um, I then really needed to be able to measure the prevalence of some of these problems and how bothersome they were to people. And also a little bit more about um, what the associations were uh, you know, what people, which people experience more problems and, and maybe why. And downstream, a little bit about whether that had any association with their dietary intake. 
So again, with funding from Crohn's and Colitis UK, um, we were funded to do a um, this large cross-sectional survey, which has uh, just been published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. And we really wanted to measure the prevalence of problems of food-related quality of life. So we recruited uh, over 1,200 people with IBD, and they're living all across the UK. So we, we were recruiting from seven different specialist IBD centres across the UK. Uh, and so we had a really large team of uh, research gastroenterologists, research nurses, research dietitians, uh, recruiting patients, um, and they would complete the standardised questionnaire Plus, we'd collect clinical information on their disease status, and we would also measure um, uh, nutrient intake using a food frequency questionnaire. The um, analysis showed um, that uh, problems of uh, food-related quality of life were really common. Um, and so uh, things that were really, really problematic for people were the most common uh, problem was people having to avoid food and drink that they knew didn't agree with their IBD. Um, uh, another problem that patients reported in 70%, you know, that's, that's over two thirds of people with IBD, they have to be more aware of what they're eating and drinking. So they're constantly thinking about, I can eat this, I can't eat that. And that becomes a burden um, to their quality of life. Uh, their enjoyment of food changes. So that was a really another prevalent problem. Um, and also being uh, be, having to be able to uh, fit eating and drinking around their daily life is, is another really common problem. So these were things that were really commonly identified. Um, the associations uh, with this, so the people who suffered uh, worse from this, we actually... A real big surprise for us is that we showed there was no difference in food-related quality of life between people with Crohn's disease and people with, with um, ulcerative colitis. And that really surprised us because I think if you asked most gastroenterologists and most dietitians, they would say that Crohn's disease, because it, it occurs in the small intestine as well as the large intestine, um, that some of the dietary interactions may be more severe um, with, uh, in Crohn's disease. But actually, we found that people with ulcerative colitis were equally as affected um, by problems of food-related quality of life. So really, we mustn't forget people with ulcerative colitis um, in, in, in this messaging. Uh, but we found that uh, people who had um, greater numbers of recent relapses, so people who more you know, had a more up and down um, type of disease, they had um, worse um, food related quality of life. Um, and also people whose distress levels uh, uh, from uh, IBD were higher, they had lower food related quality of life. Finally, as a dietitian, I'm really interested to know whether these important aspects of food related quality of life uh, are associated anyway with um, uh, unaltered nutrient intake. Uh, I'm really, really trying to avoid saying that having a low um, food-related quality of life causes a lower uh, nutrient intake because this is purely a cross-sectional study and so I can't draw any cause and cause and effect relationships. But we just measured using a food frequency questionnaire and what we found is that there are associations that people who had poorer food-related quality of life ate uh, lower uh, um, 
lower levels of some really key nutrients. And what I was really um, surprised by was those those nutrients often related to gut health. So things like fiber um, was consumed in lower amounts than people with lower food-related quality of life. Um, and so people are certain we know avoiding fruits and vegetables um, and whole grain cereals and things like that. But then also the other key um, uh, nutrients that were lower in people with lower food-related quality of life were uh, nutrients associated with bone health. So things like calcium, phosphorus and magnesium were all lower in people with lower food-related quality of life. Now, that's really important in IBD because steroids are a really, really common treatment in IBD. And steroids obviously cause uh, leaching of calcium uh, from the bones. And osteoporosis is a really common feature of inflammatory bowel disease. So it's concerning that people with a lower food-related quality of life also uh, consume less um, bone um, nutrients related to bone health. With that um, reduced nutrient intake, I know it's cross-sectional, so we don't know a ton, but I was just curious, what is the prevalence of folks following very specialized diets in this cohort? Do we have much information on like use of uh, specific carbohydrate diet and other type of restrictions? Yeah, uh, good question. So we didn't measure that in the current study, but for example, we did um, ask generally about um, about food restriction, and seventy one percent of uh, participants. Um, so again, you know, nearly three quarters of people um, said that they um, avoided certain foods to help their IBD. Um, now, you know, avoiding one or two foods. There probably is very little nutritional consequence of that. But um, I have a real concern about following very, very restrictive diets. Um, we didn't measure those in this current study, but the sorts of diets that I know from my previous research that um, patients often follow are <clears throat> uh, people trying to trying to follow a sort of organic, non-ultra-processed um, diet. Um, as yet, we have no evidence that that benefits Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. Um, people also are following this um, specific carbohydrate diet, um, and there's only one randomized controlled trial of that, and that has less than 12 participants in it. Um, and, um, and otherwise, there are no good clinical trials of that intervention. And the anti-inflammatory diet, and again, there are no randomized controlled trials of that. The emerging research on emulsifiers is being hotly investigated in inflammatory bowel disease at the moment. And I know of at least three randomized controlled trials of low emulsifier diets um, in the treatment of um, inflammatory bowel disease, one we are um, currently performing ourselves at King's College London. Um, and But again, there's no evidence as yet that that also works. So you can see the situation for patients is they have this really lived experience of understanding a little bit about what they can and can't eat. But there is no magic formula, no special diet uh, that we know of yet as to what um, what actually is an evidence-based dietary treatment for inflammatory bowel disease outside of exclusive mental nutrition. Well, that sort of sets up perfectly for, I guess, what, what this is with all this information. I mean, I, I encourage everyone to go read the manuscript. There's just so much descriptive data in this cohort that's, uh, you know, what sort of medications they're on, whether they're using general nutrition therapy and history of surgery and great stuff. But I guess as a dietitian and a researcher, kind of what nutrition research is this cohort going to spur that you want to take on? 
So, um, like I said, we are already doing lots of dietary intervention trials in inflammatory bowel disease to try to, um, to treat the disease, but that's not what this research is about. And so um, I've really had to think very, very carefully around, okay, so beyond designing new diets that have an evidence base and then showing clinical trials to work, how can we actually address food-related quality of life? And I spent a long time thinking about, um, you know, how some of these problems that we've identified in this study, how they could be overcome. And I spent a long, long time trying to work out what the interventions could be. And I suddenly just uh, came to the conclusion that I'm not the right person to answer that question and the right person to answer how you get over these psychosocial problems, these impacts on your quality of life of uh, having IBD. The, the people who can answer those questions are patients themselves. Um, and so again, with funding from Crohn's and Colitis UK, I, I, I drew together a, a multidisciplinary team of, um, of gastroenterologists, of dietitians, of nurses and social scientists. And what we did is we we've undertaken a process called experience-based co-design, um, which is where rather than me as the academic who thinks they know the answer to things, um, what you actually do is you engage the patients who are experts by their own experience um, and you involve them in, in the research studies. And so we've interviewed lots of patients, uh, lots of clinicians um, around their horror stories of living with IBD and eating and drinking, but how they then survived those. And so uh, we've identified that what patients want is they want consistent support. So we heard, we heard horror stories about um, patients being told that, oh, don't, don't worry, you've got ulcerative colitis, diet's nothing to do with it, you can eat and drink whatever you want. And yet their own experience is the opposite of that. Um, and we heard awful experiences of um, People, patients with IBD not having access to a dietitian in the clinic um, and, um, and nutrition really not being very high up on the agenda. So what the patients recommended to us uh, during these interviews and during the experience-based co-design co process was that um, what they wanted was uh, a resource that was evidence-based, that was built by patients and professionals that everybody would have access to. Um, and so uh, we then started developing um, online education. So we've uh, filmed lots of interviews with patients where patients are offering advice around, um, you know, planning. For example, how do you make sure that you can still go to a restaurant? And so patients came up with lots of advice for other patients to support them. So have you thought about calling ahead to the restaurant beforehand? Have you thought about looking at their menu online before you go? Have you thought about talking to your friends who also have been there and asking them about the food? Things that may sound obvious uh, if you've had to live with it, but if you're suffering from IBD and you, don't, and you don't have support from fellow patients, you might know the answer to those. So we have developed um, a website uh, that... Um, is currently only in the research stage. Um, and we've also now done a clinical trial of a feasibility study where we've randomized 50 people with inflammatory bowel disease, randomized them to have access to the website or not have access to the website. And we're currently in the process of then analyzing data from that to see whether having access to uh, evidence-based information from both patients and professionals can improve people's um, uh, food-related quality of life with IBD. 
That's amazing. Yeah, that sounds like a, as you're talking, I'm thinking this is like a great blend of peer support and citizen science all at the same time to really engage patient populations. It's, I'm really happy to see that's happening. As I was reading the paper too, I was also thinking this, you know, this, uh, the patient related quality of life, um, questionnaire could be its own outcome in, in future studies and hopefully in even in pharmacological trials and surgical trials, having that be a major endpoint, uh, at least a secondary endpoint that folks are considering would be awesome. Um, is this something that's freely available and folks can access it? Yeah, it's a great question. And the answer is it is 100% freely available. Um, I'm just in the state, um, process now of uh, setting up a website so that people can freely download it. But in the meantime, by all means, just email me. Uh, my contact details are on the um, AJC manuscript. Uh, and I'm very happy for non-commercial free use um, for as absolute many people as possible. Because um, one thing that patients report is that this is a really, really important feature of their life. And nobody ever asks them about it. Their gastroenterologist focuses on drugs, their surgeon focuses on surgery, and the dietitian is focusing on uh, their body weight, their body mass index, their malnutrition status, their hemoglobin, and their ferritin. And uh, they, these are the things that they really wanted to be talking about. So the tool is freely available. It's freely available as a, an endpoint in research studies, and it's also freely available uh, for use in clinical practice too. Well, that's wonderful. And I'll make sure in the show notes that we include any relevant links to this sort of stuff in your contact email or contact information as well. Any last kind of final thoughts or that you want to throw in here? No, I, I guess the the one thing that I would say is that, um, I, you know, my, my PhD um, and all of my training has been um, – a very very basic science background you know i i run a molecular microbiology lab i run a human nutrition feeding unit um uh, i work very much on the um, clinical and metabolic and microbiological aspects of nutrition and i have just really really enjoyed working on a completely different area that i feel really really passionate about and that i think is much more focused on patients' needs rather than understanding the nutritional physiology or nutritional microbiology of a disease. And I've really, really enjoyed trying to raise the profile of this problem. And hopefully with our experience-based co-design and the development of website, trying to solve it. Um, and also uh, it's been amazing for me working with, you know, not just people like me, people who own a pipette, it's been really great for me uh, working with <clears throat> gastroenterologists, uh, you know, other dietitians, nurse researchers, social scientists in this area, because I've also learned an enormous amount about doing large cross-sectional surveys and, um, and um, social science and qualitative interviews. So it's been a really, really amazing um, learning experience for me too. And it's, I'm excited to what, what the next five years holds for it too. Yeah, this is a great example, I think, of interdisciplinary science and clinician scientists working together because I'm on more on the biochemical molecular side, too. But I think our, our endpoint should still be these sort of quality of life measures. You can lower fecal calprotectin if you want, but if it doesn't make somebody's life better, does it really matter all that much? Um, so I'm, I'm really happy to see this work published in AJCN and uh, look forward to future submissions and, and acceptances, hopefully, uh, from your work. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming on. This has been uh, really enjoyable. Thanks.